and welcome to this shorter edition of the Love Your Library podcast. I'm Hattie Dulac, here without a co-host today, but on behalf of the whole team at Hampshire Libraries, we hope that you had a wonderful Christmas if you are celebrating and are looking forward to the new year, which is set to be full of some superb book releases, including the subject of today's episode. So I caught up with Jacqueline Roy to talk about her latest book, The Gosling Girl, It's a story that's less about the horrifying crime that takes place in the first few pages and more about why it happened, what it means to be a victim even when you're a perpetrator and the powerlessness of losing your identity. The book will be hitting shelves everywhere on the 20th of January so make sure that you add it to your 2022 reading list. The interview starts with Jacqueline reading from the prologue. October 1997. The glass shatters and she runs, leaving spots of blood in the tangled weeds and dandelion puffs. She stops for breath. She doesn't feel the cut. She has long since learnt to block out pain, but the blood will lead them to her. What's DNA, she'll ask when questioned, and they'll look at her baby face and they won't know how to answer. She hides in some bushes, beds down for the night. She feels safer by herself even though she fears the dark. In the morning, the body is found. She watches the glass houses from her hiding place. Police cars pull up, blue lights flashing. She enjoys the sound the sirens make. It helps her feel alive. What were you doing in the greenhouse? The policeman will ask, and she'll laugh at his mistake until she has to stuff the tissue in her mouth to stop. The house wasn't green, it was gray and made of glass. It was the home she built for herself. There were teacups and saucers carefully removed from the pound shop on the high street. There was a blanket and tea light secreted from the cardboard box in the front room. But glass tends to break. They will tell her Kerry's dead. She will be put away. She likes the words. They make her feel like a doll that no one wants to play with anymore. And she is so tired of playing now. Those strange grown-up games with grown-up men who act like twisted children. Being put away sounds good to her. Welcome to the podcast, Jackie. It's so, so lovely to have you on. For our listeners, would you just be able to give us a little bit of an impression about what the book's about? Yes, um, the book's about Michelle Cameron, who, um, as a child of 10, kills another much younger child, aged four, Um, She's dual heritage, English and Jamaican, um, and the child that she kills is a white child. And that becomes significant in the book in terms of the way the whole case is reported in the media and the difficulty that Michelle Cameron has, um, primarily in terms of how she um, rehabilitates, really, is that she's named by the judge um, at her trial and she's tried in an adult court. And that means that She's really subject to incredible sort of persecution once she is released. And the novel, you know, the prologue, um, gives a bit of background to what happened to her and what caused her to be put away, as it's described in the book. Um, but the the novel, pr- novel proper, really, chapter one, opens with her release from prison. So the book opens really where other books often close, i.e. Um, with the release from prison rather than the imprisonment for, for the crime. And, um, and it goes from there. 
yeah it's that lifetime after almost yeah after what you would expect to be the the meat of a book I suppose but I, I think that's a really interesting way of setting it up one of my first thoughts was that it was quite a hard novel to pin down I think I went in thinking this is going to be a crime fiction through and through and I suppose it's not because you know that she's killed this child from the very first few pages and it's more about the revelations of her mental state and her beginnings and tying the past to the present that that comes through really well so there's a lot of themes surrounding you know memory and trauma racial and cultural identity and also these big systemic institutions that are riddled with corruption and racism and stuff like that of those themes what what were the most important things do you think to relay to the reader when you were writing there are a number of themes in the novel i think um power and powerlessness is is quite significant in the novel um certainly how cultural representations are determined and from that i thought a lot about identities and how they're formed and one of the things that that happens to Michelle Cameron in the book is that she loses the right to have her own name her real name and of course the the name that we have is a key part of our identity it really is so attached to our sense of who we are so to be deprived of your name and to know that you can never use that name again must be a quite horrendous thing to have to deal with especially when you when you're just a child and so i wanted to use the whole business of naming as a key way of looking at identity whether it's in terms of, of racial identities or identities in a wider sense i think names are absolutely crucial to our understanding of who we are so the name thing became i suppose almost symbolic in the book of a much wider problem around identity so identity is a, is a very big theme i think alongside that goes how how do we work out who we are how do we find our place in the world and michelle unlike the rest of us really has to start from scratch she has one identity that that is removed and then she has to rebuild a completely new one and she can't ever refer to her old identity um you know except with a few key people in her life and that must be a huge burden to carry so i think the the other big theme of the book really is how society can fail children mm. um because there's a lot in the book about really whether i mean michelle clearly is a perpetrator and i hope the book doesn't make excuses for her but what i aimed to do in the book was to explain so it's in terms of genre you meant you mentioned that aspect really i suppose you could describe it as a why done it rather than a who done it <laughs> um you know i've heard that phrase used in relation to other books and i think i think it's a useful one so the whole book is is really exploring the why of things rather than you know necessarily the the minute details of the crime and thinking also if if we believe as a society that what we aim to do is to rehabilitate when we imprison people particularly children i think it's more complex where it's adults but where it's children if that's the aim then um you know the naming of a, a child and the, everything that goes with that is such a huge punishment to add to the you know the imprisonment and all the other things that happen the you know the removal of liberty um so in a way she was doubly punished it seemed to me through the you know the naming of her in the book 
Yeah, and because it's called the Gosling Girl, I think you you find out quite early on that 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 name is what the press gives her based on the surname of the girl who was murdered. Even her like press identity, I suppose, is tied to someone else's. So it's not ever her own. She never really gets to experience who she is. And I think the awfulness as well of her being called the Gosling girl also relates to the family of the victim because she is then forever associated with their child and they can't kind of grieve in the way that they need to because um, their surname is attached to the person who, who murdered their child. So it's impossible really for both Michelle Cameron and for the child Kerry Gosling's family. Mm. I think we've sort of been talking about it, but the element of that press coverage and and that culpability of the justice system and and the media to think about the rehabilitation element of, you know, what the aim is when we imprison someone, especially a child. It made me question the kind of research that must have been needed to cover this kind of topic. It reminded me of a few cases that have come up in in the sort of past 30 years or so of child murders by other children. So what kind of, yeah, what kind of research needed to go into that? Yes, there, there were two main cases that I looked at. One is often referred to as the case of Mary Bell. Um, Mary Bell was a child who in, um, in the 1960s um, killed two much smaller children. And um, there's there's been some, some very useful stuff written about her and her experiences. So I, I read as much as I could about that. And then, of course, more recently, um, in the early 90s, um, John Venables and Robert Thompson also killed a much, much younger child. So I looked at, at both those cases and the, the kinds of things that were written at the time. There's also still, even, even now, so many years on from both those cases, a lot on the internet, which sometimes I found quite shocking in its kind of... Um, I suppose it's very black and white view of what went on. So, um, you know, it's the, it's the kind of these children should be put away for life sort of narrative you see on the internet. Not, of course, from everybody, but I think what tends to happen is that the loudest people are the ones that get the most attention and the loudest ones are talking about, you know, the punishment that these children got wasn't enough. So, you know, thinking about that um, was really interesting. And the kind of passion it arouses in people, I suppose, when, when a child is murdered. And that, that's absolutely understandable because it is horrendous. But really, it's for the families to have the passion and, and to have the feelings about it. And it's clearly the most horrendous thing that a family could ever go through, something like that. I don't think it's necessarily for the, for the rest of us to jump on that that kind of bandwagon and to start throwing all the stones that get thrown. Um, you know, it's completely understandable where it's members of the child's family, but I don't think it's quite so understandable when it's the rest of us. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that very clearly happens in the book. It, it's almost um, kind of medieval in a way, the, the grab your pitchforks and go, it's that mob mentality, isn't it, of people feeling validated. But such an interesting thing to cover. But I mean, did you find that difficult to write about at all? It's it's quite a harrowing and heavy topic, but I suppose still a fair amount of distance between those cases and and the fiction of the of the book. Yes, um, 
I did find it difficult because I felt quite a lot of responsibility in terms of, of how I represented both Michelle Cameron and um, you know the child victim Kerry Gosling's situation. And I didn't want to kind of, I mean, obviously, Michelle Cameron's at the forefront of the book. It's her story I'm telling. But at the same time, I didn't want to ignore Kerry Gosling's family, the people who were most affected by the crime, but they were by no means the main focus of, of the narrative. So it was really a question of acknowledging the kind of pain that they must have gone through, um, you know, even though it's a fictional you know, narrative, while at the same time looking at the plight of Michelle Cameron. Um, so I, my aim really was not to excuse what she did. And that, that seems so important not to do that. And I, it, it, you never know how far you've succeeded with that kind of thing when you're writing a story. But that was certainly my aim. But also to write about what led to her doing that was, was hard too. I mean, I don't want to give too much away about, you know, the plot of the narrative. But her reasons are complex and really quite harrowing. And one of the things that said, I think on the cover of the book, you know, is, is she um, a murderer or a victim both? And I wanted that to come through as clearly as possible as well. Mm. I think as a reader, you're quite sympathetic to to her situation um, without, yeah, without absolving her of her own responsibility. That definitely comes through. And just, yeah, just to think about some of the other characters in the book I think it's not a at no point is it a sort of first person perspective but you definitely focus on the perspective of Michelle uh, Natalie Tyler who's a policewoman who's involved by her ties to the police and then Zoe who's writing a book about the whole event with Michelle's help. So I found these characters so different, but also quite connected. And I think each of them have their own problems and their own feelings around their own identity and, and stuff like that. Which, if any, did you prefer writing? Did you find any challenges in that process at all? Goodness, I that's an interesting question about preference. I don't, I don't think I preferred one over the other. They each pose their own challenges. And also there was pleasure as well in writing each. I mean, I suppose um, I quite like um, ca characters who are complex. And Zoe certainly had complex reasons for wanting to do the book. And one of the things I wanted to show about her was that although her motives are full of self-interest, she does actually help Michelle Cameron as well. And that's quite becomes quite a complex relationship because it does benefit Michelle, even though it also exploits Michelle. So I, I did enjoy kind of un, untying all of that and kind of trying to present it to the reader. I thought that was, uh, it was one of the pleasures, I suppose, of, of writing the novel, trying to put across the complexity of that relationship. And I suppose my the character Natalie Tyler was complex for different reasons because as a black police officer, she was always going to be in quite a compromised and compromising position in relation to her job because, um, you know, historically, the police have been described as institutionally racist. And so to work in that environment is, is a real difficulty, I think, for a black officer. And I wanted to explore that and also her assumptions about what it was to be a criminal 
um, what what creates um, a criminal. And one of the things Natalie keeps um, thinking through the novel is, you know, maybe I'm on the wrong side. <laughs> and uh, um, and although, of course, it's not quite as straightforward as there being two sides. Um, that was the way I think of highlighting the dilemma that Natalie Tyler finds herself in. Um, so, for example, there's a point in, in the novel where Michelle Cameron asks her if she's ever been to the Notting Hill Carnival. And she's quite cagey in her reply, Natalie. And Michelle realises that she was there in her role as a police officer. So she was policing the event. Um, and again, historically, particularly after um, you know, the riots of the, of the early 80s, there was quite a clumsy police presence. I mean, Natalie would have been too young to have been involved in that, but, um, you know, that particular time. Um, but certainly that there is or has been, you know, a very big police presence at the Notting Hill Carnival, leading to a sense perhaps that it's the people who attend that, that are being policed and are expected in a way to behave in a criminal manner. So that kind of thing would really have compromised someone like, like Natalie Tyler. And I, I use that event as a way of a way into talking about the difficulties of being, um, you know, the kind of black face of the police uh, force. Yeah, I, th I think such a complex and really in-depth topic to cover. It, it really... You could have almost done a whole separate book about Natalie's experience in, in the police, I think, because she's a fantastic character to explore for all the reasons that you just mentioned. But yeah, I found that Notting Hill Carnival a bit really interesting, especially thinking about the location where actually it's sort of been gentrified and, and the visitors don't necessarily represent the communities that would have attended originally, which is so interesting. Yes, yes. and then, I, you know, I also... Um, have Zoe living in Notting Hill as the new kind of residence because, um, you know, in the 60s and 70s, it was a really run-down area with, with um, you know, a high um, black population who've all kind of been dispelled since because it's been gentrified, as you say. And Zoe, in a way, is the new face of Notting Hill. Mm. So that, that was part of the novel as well. Yeah, yeah. One of the questions that I had was, is this the kind of book that you like to read yourself or is it a total departure from that? Um, I read a whole range of, of books. Um, I'm really, uh, anything um, really I, I can read. I do enjoy, I suppose the fiction I most enjoy is the fiction that subverts the genre in a way. And that was one of the things that I hoped to do with The Gosling Girl, to subvert the crime fiction genre. So to do things that were perhaps unexpected and a bit different in it. And those are the kinds of narratives that I, I really enjoy. I think um, because crime fiction is such a massive genre and so popular, some of its tropes have become quite hackneyed. You know, you expect to see certain things and they happen. And, and in a way, that's one of the pleasures of reading, but it can also be one of the frustrations of reading if you keep seeing the same thing over and over. So I love reading fiction that doesn't do what you expect it to do. Yeah, me too, me too. And uh, do, you, do you have anything on your reading list at the moment or any books that particularly resonate with you that you might want to recommend to our listeners? Well, I'm about to read a book by um, Ashley Hickson Lovance, um, which is hasn't been published yet. So I've been sent a proof copy. 
And um, apparently that that is about a black footballer. So I'm really interested in going forward with that one. That that's what I'm going to be reading over Christmas. So that that's exciting for me. In in terms of some of my favourite books, though, a book that I absolutely love because it's so different from anything else I've ever read is a book by David Dabberdeen called A Harlock's Progress. And it's a novel that I don't think ever got the recognition that it deserved. It's a phenomenal novel. It's it's really hard to read because it's a historical novel that looks at the slave trade. So it's the story of Mungo, um, a slave who's taken from Africa and ends up on a plantation. And what I admire so much about the novel is the way that it looks at the horrors of the slave trade without ever kind of flinching from it, but at the same time finding strategies that enable the reader to get through the horror. Um, because it's, I think the slave trade is incredibly hard to read about. I, I, I find myself flinching from it because um, if it's done well, it's so powerful. Um, and what David Dabberdeen does in his descriptions of the kind of horror and violence of the slave trade is to create a kind of surreal narrative. So the reader constantly doesn't quite know what's real and what isn't real. And neither does the character of Mongo, because he has to reimagine his past in a way because he was so young when he was taken from his home that he can't quite remember Africa. So he relies on other people's versions of Africa. And the version created for him is the version created by the slave trade, which is that it was a place of savagery in a place that, that no one would want to live in. Um, so he, on the one hand, he's got this kind of memory of Africa that's been created for him. And on the other, he has the kind of memories of his childhood, which was of having a, a, a really good childhood and growing up, you know, happily in his environment. And the two things are kind of fighting together in a way in the novel throughout. It's, it's just such an incredibly clever piece of writing. So I'd really recommend it to anybody, but be warned, it's not an easy read. It's a very complex narrative structure, but it is so worthwhile. Yeah, wow. I'm, yeah, I wrote that down because I'm definitely going to go and seek that out. One of my other questions was going to be to ask about your, your route into writing. What was really the, the moment for you that made you think, I'm going to become a writer now? said there were quite a few moments really um one of the things that um when i was a child of seven my father died and he was a writer himself he, he didn't have much success in his lifetime at all but one of his books which was called no black sparrows i edited after he died um you know i was um in in my I think it must have been my late 20s when i did that work um but one of the things that that happened at you know, after his funeral, people came back to the house, and they were talking to. to I mean, I, I think they probably said the same thing to my siblings, but they certainly said to me, um, you know, I, I do hope you're going to follow in your father's footsteps. And I think that was because people were so shocked when he died. He he was in his his fifties. He was still you know, relatively young. And he was an artist, a bit, you know, painter, sculptor, and and a novelist. And I think people couldn't quite come to terms with the loss that it was and the fact that so much of his work was unfinished. So they really wanted one of us to take up the mantle. 
And um, as a seven-year-old, I took this incredibly seriously. I thought, well, that that is obviously what I have to do. Um, and my sister also writes, so I wonder if the same thing happened to her. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, so, the, so that was one of the, the kind of sparks for writing. Another one, uh, you know, and I carried that right the way through. Another one came, I suppose, when... Um, Again, when, when I was still young, I was um, in my late teens and early 20s, and I spent some time in a psychiatric hospital. And what kept me going really was writing and trying to, um, I suppose it was a work, partly a way of, of distracting myself from, you know, the fact that I was there, but also a way of um, understanding my own experiences, just, just to keep putting things on paper and trying to retrieve a, a sort of identity, which, which wasn't that of a psychiatric patient, I think, came through writing. So all of those things carried me through. through. And actually, when I was, I think I was 22, when I had my first agent, literary agent, um, although nothing came of that. Um, you know, I was writing children's books at that time, but none of them um, got published until I was in, I guess I was in my early 30s when um, I first got um, a writing contract. So I have been writing for, for, yes. for many years for, you know, for, the, for all those reasons. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's, I mean, I can't think of any better reason to get into writing really than carrying on a powerful legacy. I think that's such a mm. lovely thing to do. Yeah, I think um, if I'd understood at seven quite how, how complex and difficult it was all going to be, I, I probably wouldn't even have attempted it. But one of the things about growing up in a family where writing is important is that it kind of gives you I suppose a sort of confidence that, that you can do it because it's just assumed that you can do it nobody said to, well you know you can have a go but you won't be able to <laughs> you just <Yeah>. said <laughs> you know you need to follow in his footsteps <laughs> so I, I didn't although much later of course I did have the you know the confidence crisis and all that that, that you you have um, it didn't come till much, much later because I, I really believed that, um, you know, this was what I was supposed to do. I think that's fantastic. That's so good. <laughs> the, the question that we always like to ask our authors on the podcast is what, what's next for you? What's, what are your plans going forward and what can we look out for from you in the next months, years? I'm, I'm writing another adult novel. So... Um, and I hope, well, I'm, I'm really, really hoping that will be finished um, in the year's time. Um, so, that, so that will be the next thing. The title's provisional yet, so I can't really say too much about that. But, um, but yes, I'm, I'm certainly going to continue writing. I may also, um, once that novel's finished, think about going back into children's writing, because I've written several children's books that um, you know, have been published by Penguin and Walker Books over the years. So, um, although most of them are out of print now, but yeah, I will probably go back to that as well. Oh, fantastic. Well, I'm definitely going to look out for that. And actually, one, one other question, just um, obviously with, with any author, there's usually a bit of a connection to libraries. But I just wanted to ask if there is any significance of libraries as, a, as an institution or as a place physically for you, what that significance is. Uh, it's huge. One of the things that happened recently was that I reconnected with an old school friend that I hadn't seen probably for 50 years. Um, and we were at primary school together. 
And she she got in touch with me as, you know, because she'd heard about my writing. And one of the things she was saying in, in her email to me was she was reminding me of how much we used to love the local library. It was actually at the end of my street when I was little. And um, it was, they had the most wonderful children's library. It was much bigger than they usually are. It was, um, it was a library in Battersea. And we were there almost every day. We loved it. It, it had a lovely atmosphere. They had, you know, the little children's chairs that you can sit on at a table. And the staff were wonderful to us. I think that they realised how much we loved books. So they would let us get behind the counter and stamp people's books as they were going out. So, um, so I suppose for about uh, five years of my life until, until we moved away from there, that place was absolutely central to me. I'd borrow uh, three books a day. Um, you know, I just go. I'd romp through through books. So you know, I'd read several books a, a week, and it was just wonderful. It was, you know, one of the best things of my life. I think reading as a child. I just, uh, you know, I read Noel Stretfield. I read all all kinds of writers, and just got so excited by what they were doing. And I suppose another reason why I started writing was because, um, you know, I grew up in the fifties and sixties. And there really were virtually no books with black characters in them for children. And, you know, when I started writing for children, one of the reasons why I did that was the recognition of that absence and really wanted wanting to reinscribe myself as a child into that fiction um, that I'd been absent from all those years ago. That's, I mean, firstly, your experience of the library as a child sounds absolutely wonderful. Oh, it really. was like idyllic. It really yeah. was. And and secondly, I, I mean, it's it's so important, isn't it, to feel represented as a child when you're still developing, when you're still like feeling your way in the world and forming those those connections to society and stuff. So it's su- such a worthwhile reason to to write books. I think. Thank you so much for coming on, and really look forward to seeing what what you come out with next. Thank you. Thank you so much for this interview. It's been a real pleasure to talk yeah. to you.